Hi there, and welcome to another one of my podcasts. I suppose if Enrico Caruso is, without real argument, the most famous and greatest tenor on record of opera, then the equivalent of the classical violin would be Yasha Heifetz. He was born in 1901 and died in 1987. He was a real child prodigy. He made his debut at the age of seven playing the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto. It's ridiculous. He actually recorded in 1910, although these recordings weren't discovered till after he died. He was born in Vilnius, which was then in Russia and is now the capital of Lithuania. I've actually performed there. And he had that performance as a seven-year-old in a place called Kaunas, probably in the same venue where I sang many, many years later. The family moved to America when he was, I think, 16 years old. And within the year, he was recording for the Victor Company. There's a funny story attached to this. From what I gather, they were sort of quite sort of gentle with him and saying, you know, he's only 16. And, and what have you prepared to play for us today? And he literally had learnt the entire violin repertoire. And he said, well, what would you want me to play? <laughs> Whatever it is, I'll play it. This was a session, of course, where he was still recording into a horn. He had an amazingly long and famous career. The only things went wrong with it was when once performing in Israel, one of the right-wing nationalists attacked him. But then again, these things seemed to happen in Israel. He was, of course, Jewish. And he carried on till old age, although towards the end, he had an accident with his shoulder Although he could play, he found it difficult to hold his bowing arm up as high as he wanted to and decided to teach more. After a very nasty fall, he died at the age of, I think, 86. Well, the recording I have for you, it comes from about 1929, when he would have been in his late 20s, so he was pretty much at his peak. All the other violinists sort of worshipped at his shrine. I know somebody once was sitting next to David Oistrach, in a concert that Highfest gave at the Royal Albert Hall, and Oistrach leant over and said, I wish I could play like that. Chrysler once said, well, I think we might as well just break our violins and give up playing when he heard Highfest play. That's how good he was. Well, as I say, this is a recording from 1929 or so, and it's a recording of what one British conductor would have called a lollipop. It's a little piece of music written by Schubert, and I know that you'll enjoy it because it is violin playing at its very best. Yasha Heifetz. Thank you. 
Well, the next recording was also made around 1929, but it couldn't be really more different. That was a Russian who lived most of his life in America. This is an American who lived most of her life in England. Her name, at least on stage, was Ella Shields, although her original name was Busher. She was born in Baltimore, in Maryland, in 1879, and she died in Lancashire in 1952. In 1898, she decided to go on the stage with her sisters and had some sort of act. In 1904, a talent scout found her over there and invited her to London, which no doubt was very exciting for her. Well, it must have been because she had some sort of success and within two years married a songwriter called William Hargreaves. He was going to be very important in her life, apart from being her husband, although they were divorced later on in 1923. In 1910, and I'm not quite sure this is either before or after her change of act, she was involved in the very, very first night ever at what was then the new London Palladium Theatre. Around that same time, she'd been involved in a sort of party where musical performers performed for each other. There was a double act, two men, and one of them got ill, and so she decided she'd step in, put on men's clothing, and help this chap fulfil his act. It proved so successful that she decided to become a male impersonator. This was occasionally done in those days. The most famous of these was a lady called Vesta Tilly, who had a hit song called Burlington Bertie, not the one you're about to hear, and in fact I don't think I've ever heard that song. What happened was that her husband decided to write a sort of pastiche of that song, and his version was called Burlington Bertie from Bow, and it's about a sort of a tramp who's got airs and graces and pretends that he's terribly important. Interestingly, there's a line in it which, of course, they couldn't have known at the time, would mean so much almost a century later, I've just had a banana with Lady Diana. They would have had no idea who Lady Diana would have been at the end of the 20th century. Well, Ella Shields had great success, literally toured the world with this act, and indeed performed in her original hometown at one point in the 20s. However, with the crash, a lot of music call career sort of came to an end as she had various jobs i believe she worked in macy's at one point as a seller of jewelry or something like that however in the 40s she was remembered and took part in a sort of retrospective show as a royal command performance in the 40s only a few years before she died anyhow in 1929 which was right at the end of her career she made a recording of burlington bertie from bow on a cheap label called Broadcast, and therefore we can hear her in pretty good electrically recorded sound singing this song, and that's what I'm going to give you now. <laughs> 
Ladies and gentlemen, Ella Shields. I'm Bert. Perhaps you've heard of me, Bert. You've had word of me plodding along, happy and strong, living on plates of fresh air. I dress up in fashion, and when I am feeling depressed, I shave from my cup all the whiskers and fluff, stick my hat on, and puddle up wet. I'm Burlington Bird. I rise at 10.30 and reach Sandown Park about three. I stand by a rail when a horse is for sale and you ought to see Wooden watch me. I lean on some awning while Lord Darby's yawning. Then he bids 2,000 and I bid good morning. I'm Bert. Bert, I'd buy one a third. But where could I keep it? I can't let my man see me in bed without Gigi. I'm Burlington Bertie from Bob. I fall, oh, ironical soul. That's my monocle, holds up my face, keeps it in place. Stops it from slipping away. <laughs> cigars, cigars. I smoke thousands. I usually deal in the strand. But you have to take care when you're getting them there. Or some idiot might step on your hand. I'm Burlington Bertie. I rise at 10.30. Then Buckingham Palace, I view. I stand in the yard while they're changing the guard, and the king shouts across, Hulu, the prince of Wales' brother, along with some other, slap me on the back and say, come and see mother, I'm Bert, Bert, royalty's her, when they ask me to dine, I say no. I've just had a banana with Lady Diana. I'm Burlington Well, now, as you will be aware if you've been listening to my podcast, I collect a lot of opera records. And I'm quite interested in some of the, what should we call them, the rivals of Caruso, people who sang at the same time, other tenors. And here's one of them. His name was Giuseppe Acerbi. He was born in 1871 in a place called Codogno, and he died in 1934 in Milano, which means he was in his early 60s, which in those days was a reasonable length of life, I suppose. He studied in Milan, made his debut in a little place called Lodi, but was not happy with his own performance and did some more studying. He then had what you might call his proper debut in a place called Piacenza. Now, these aren't major opera houses in major cities, so he wasn't a big name. However, he was noticed because in 1901 that performance was of Lucia di Lamomur 
and he was singing with a quite a well-known baritone called Giuseppe Pacini. I've got records of him. So his career developed, and by 1905, he got quite a good contract for a bigger town, Bologna, and there he sang in what was then in a brand new opera called Madame Butterfly, and he sang opposite a now legendary soprano from Poland called Salomeo Kuroszelniska. And he had a career which then went on till, well, I can't find anything after about 1917. I don't know what he did after that, and information about him is fairly thin on the ground. However, I've always noticed his records, and I've liked what I've heard. I don't claim him to have been one of the greats, but, as I say, really highly professional tenor, and if he were around now, he'd be a superstar. Not being a star performer of his day, although he did record for the Gramophone Company, or HMV, he wasn't kept on by them, and he had to find other recording companies to record for. He did record one or two records for Phonotypia, but again, he wasn't a regular for them either. He made quite a few records for a company called Artifon and another one called Phonodisc. These were lesser labels and companies which didn't last, and so those records are fairly scarce and difficult to come by. I'm going to play you his recording in 1905, I think, fairly early on, of one of the famous arias from Verdi's Rigoletto, Questo Quella. And I think you'll hear that he was a good tenor without, as I say, calling him a great one. And certainly, if he were around now, I'd be happy to buy a ticket and hear him sing. So, ladies and gentlemen, here you are, Giuseppe Acerbi, for your pleasure. Qualche beltà 
Now, earlier in this podcast, I played your recording of an American woman who had most of her career in the UK. And now I'm going to reverse that by playing you a recording, and I've had recordings of her before my podcast, somebody who was born in Lancashire but had most of her career in America. Her name was Ada Jones, of course. She was born in 1873 and died in 1922, so her life was almost exactly the same length as Caruso's, but she couldn't have been more different, really. She was born, as I say, in Lancashire, but the whole family moved to Philadelphia in 1879, and when she was quite a small girl, was already on stage playing juvenile parts and doing various things on stage, so she was obviously stage-struck. By 1893, she must have been very modern, she made her first recording on Edison Cylinders. She performed live, but she didn't tour because apparently she was an epileptic and obviously would have presented difficulties if she'd been on the road. But she did perform live in certain places. For instance, there was a place in New York where she performed regularly, but she didn't, as I say, tour. She recorded in 1894 for a company called the North American Phonograph Company. But they sadly went out of business a couple of years later, so that left her without anybody to record for for another, ooh, ten years or so, when she was picked up by Victor, and then she performed for all sorts of labels. Zonophone, you've got her on. She recorded for Columbia, all the main labels, and of course Edison once more. She was very popular because she had a very clear, beautifully enunciated soprano voice, she could do all sorts of different accents. She could be Jewish one moment, Irish the next, black the third, Italian, anybody. She could sing all the songs of that time, the novelty songs, which often relied on the particular immigrant group that they were supposed to depict. And she could do it beautifully. She often sang with somebody called Billy Murray, who was like the sort of male equivalent of her. And I think... I can hear him in the accompanying choir. So obviously they weren't people of huge egos and they would sort of join in each other's recordings. This is one of the classic songs of that period and you find it sung by various film stars in Hollywood in the 30s, 40s and 50s. But this is one of the original versions recorded certainly before 1910. The name of the song, By the Light of the Silvery Moon. I'm a big fan of Ada Jones, and I hope you are too. Here she is then. I'll croon love tune, honeymoon. 
Recently I was on a bus and had to sit next to a 24-year-old girl who had not heard of just about anybody I mentioned to her. Ella Fitzgerald, Peggy Lee, Duke Ellington. She'd heard of the Beatles but had never actually listened to any of their music. Unbelievable. So I'm sure that she wouldn't know the name I'm going to mention now, even though he was one of the huge names of jazz. His name was Benny Goodman. He was born in 1909 and had already joined the Musicians' Union by the time he was 13. As you probably know, he played with various bands in the 20s, including Red Nichols, and then formed his own band in the mid-30s. And the final band was a sort of epitome of what was known as swing, a form of jazz of the late 30s. The track I want to play you today is an unusual one, and it shows his ability as a classical musician, although still in the jazz idiom. 
It's a wonderful track called Bach Goes to Town, and it was a tune that's obviously a jazz tune, but based on the sort of principles that you hear in Bach. And I've always loved this track. Unfortunately, the copy that I've got is very hissy, and I tried getting rid of the background hiss, but then it spoiled the sound of the recording. So I'm going to give you the track as it is, You'll have to put up with a hiss, I'm afraid. It's a wonderful recording, nonetheless. It's called Bach Goes to Town. This is the Benny Goodman Orchestra in sort of semi-classical mode, but swinging all the same. And I hope you'll enjoy it. I certainly do. Of course, he had a long career which went on long past World War Two, and he made classical recordings. But all you've got to do is go to Wikipedia and you can look all that up. In the meantime, let's enjoy this wonderful recording. Bach Goes to Town, Benny Goodman, 1938. Now here's somebody I haven't played you for a long time, mainly because I put his folder with all his tracks in it in the wrong place on my computer. So let's do something about that. His name, of course, was Al Bowley. He was born Albert Alec Bowley in 1898. And to say his early life was complicated is putting it mildly. 
His father was Greek, his mother was Lebanese, he was born in Portuguese Madagascar, but he was brought up in Johannesburg. How about that? And it was in Johannesburg that he first got a musical job playing guitar, and he used to play a Machia Ferry, mainly you can see him in some clips on YouTube, a Machia Ferry of the type that the backing musicians of Django Reinhardt used to play. It's quite obvious what he was playing. It's a very, very unusual guitar, that. And it's a good guitar for playing with a band because it had a sort of wooden throat in it which made it much louder and it could cut through the sound of the band. However, that's not, of course, what he's known for these days. He was a wonderful vocalist. Having played with this gentleman called Edgar Adelaar in South Africa, he lost his job with him but managed to get one with somebody called, I suppose it's pronounced, Jimmy Lacombe, and with him he toured places like India and Singapore. He left that band with a pianist who was called Monialita, and they teamed up and became an almost inseparable duo for the rest of Alboldi's career. In 1927, somehow, he turned up in Germany and made his first recording, and then the next year he was in London singing with Fred Alizalda, the first American to really bring jazz to Great Britain. It wasn't long before he was in high demand because he really was a special singer and there was a sort of rivalry for his presence. Roy Fox had his contract for working live whereas Ray Noble, with whom he's often remembered, had a contract with him for recording and they would sort of fight over him because he was in high demand, as I say. He hardly had a free time for himself. Over the next few years, he recorded with all sorts of backing groups and sometimes under his own name. Roy Fox was sort of superseded by another band at the same venue and his name was Lou Stone. It's a name one doesn't hear very much of these days. And it's one of the recordings with Lou Stone that I'm going to give you now. It's called What a Little Moonlight Can Do, recorded on the 3rd of August 1934. It's an interesting comparison with the famous version by Billie Holiday, you might say. At some point in the mid-30s, he had trouble with his voice, a sort of wart on his larynx, and he went to New York to get it operated on. And I believe that he started becoming well-known over there too. However, there was trouble with his voice, and this affected his popularity back in Great Britain when he returned, and it took a while before he started getting more work again the way he had been before. Finally, he started working with various people towards the beginning of the war, for instance, with Snake Hips Johnson, and I believe it was with him that he made his last appearance in April 1941. Following that, he managed to get back to his flat in the West End, but the story that I got and from his widow, is that he was, well, he was drunk, and he didn't wake up when there was a warning about a bombing raid, and his flat was at the top of a building. The Luftwaffe dropped some sort of mine, and it was a very big bomb, and what she said was that he was killed by what was called blast. The effect of the bomb was to literally suck all the air out of the room in which he was sleeping, so that he instantly died rather than being blown apart. He was apparently buried in a mass grave with other victims of air raids that day. A sad end, but we have a lot of him, I mean a lot of him, on record. The list of his records is 
pages long then there are one or two videos of him so we know exactly what he was like i would say that he was most unusual he was al Bowley. he wasn't an imitation of bing crosby or fred astaire or anybody else he sang like himself his phrasing was naturally good his voice was wonderful and like as i say nobody else at all he had an al Bowley voice just like bing crosby sounds like bing crosby and frank sinatra sounds like frank sinatra he's fondly remembered by a lot of record collectors and rightly so so if you don't know him here is your chance to enjoy al Bowley. <laughs> Here's my track. I try to sound like me and nobody else. I hope that works. Before I do so, and I've said this many times, there surely must be someone out there who would like to enhance their record collection by relieving me of all of my doubles, or at least half of them, or something like that. There are lots of them, and I don't charge dealer prices, so do get in touch with me. Don't be shy. You can also, as I've mentioned before, 
send me requests for a track which if I have I'd be delighted to play as long as it's on 78 or cylinder and not on vinyl. The email address is as always spats47 at ntlworld.com You can find that on my website as well erlokin.net Oh yes, this is going out on the 1st of October. In November, I'm planning to do a little tour of Europe and I'm still looking for an extra gig in Italy between the 7th and 11th of November. So if you know a jazz club or similar venue that would like to have me, please let me know very quickly. I'm also looking for a gig in France, preferably Paris, but anywhere in France, somewhere around the 18th, 19th, 20th, somewhere around there. Again, a jazz club or somewhere similar where I could perform. I do at least speak French. That said, this is a song which I literally wrote this year, so you won't know it. It's called Somebody, and it's a sort of basic swinger-type song of what I fondly like to think would be like the Great American Songbook. I hope that you'll enjoy it, and it's me at the age of 76. Happily, I don't smoke and never really drunk alcohol, so my voice is pretty much as was. So until the next time, as always, au revoir. If somebody meets somebody and the time is right, one somebody tells somebody this could be the night when the stars are all aligned and Thing just might and it could even be for you and me if you find the right somebody I can't tell you why but when somebody meets somebody sparks begin to fly even when said somebody seems a little shy it could be you and me eternally there are many sounds of broken hearts tales of woe and bitter tears Why should music keep us all apart? Wasting years and years I am just a poor somebody Looking for a date Could you be a sad somebody Looking for her mate If somebody loves somebody Must it be too late Or could you really be My somebody
somebody looking for a date Could you be a sad somebody looking for her mate If somebody loves somebody, must it be too late or 